world. Thank you so much for joining us. I'm Joshua Sparrow, Executive Director of the Braselton Touchpoint Center, and we're here today to honor the life work of Dr. T. Barry Braselton and to work together to make the dreams we shared with him for all children and for all families come true. One of Barry's first books was entitled To Listen to a Child, and his last one so far is a memoir called Learning to Listen, the inspiration for this webinar and podcast series. Eight days before Dr. Brazelton's death, at about this time a year ago, and just a few months shy of his 100th birthday, Barry said to a group of us here in Boston that today's family's concerns are not the same as when he was in practice because he'd been listening to parents in Massachusetts for the past couple of years. Today, he told us, parents are worried about digital technology, social media, and the way those interfere with our relationships in our families. Parents worry about guns in schools, violence in the world, and the polarized politics in which it has become harder and harder for us to really listen to each other. Yet we'd like to think that there are answers to these challenges, today's challenges, in what every baby knows. That was, by the way, the title of Barry's Emmy award-winning TV show. Because Barry's studies of newborn behavior revealed previously unrecognized competencies in brand new babies, and he discovered these competencies because he stopped to listen closely and observe carefully. His research with colleagues on the earliest infant-parent interactions revealed the microsecond to microsecond nonverbal cues that are the foundation of human, uh, of human communication throughout the lifespan. And that's why Alicia and I wish that we could see all of you to truly be in communication with you and to listen uh, together with you. We hope nonetheless, even though we can't see you, that you will be with us for this Learning to Listen webinar and podcast series as we listen to what infants, toddlers, and young children can teach us about how they listen, how they learn, so that we can all do our part to help our world learn to listen together. Today, we will be listening to and learning with Professor Alicia Lieberman, more in a moment about Professor Lieberman. Uh, first, I wanted to make sure you all know that the Braselton Touchpoint Center Learning to Listener Learning to Listen webinar and podcast series will be available to you on the braseltontouchpoints.org website and will also include webinars by June Lay Lee and Catherine Hirsch Pasek. Uh, June Lay Lee, formerly co-director for early learning and children's media at the Fred Rogers Center and now at the Harvard Graduate School of Education Saul Zand Center, will give a webinar on Tuesday, May 21st at 2 p.m. Eastern Standard Time and his talk will be entitled listen with more than our ears, helping children through simple, ordinary interactions. Catherine Hirsch-Pasek, director of the Infant Language Laboratory at the Temple University and an internationally renowned expert on infant language development, will give a webinar on Tuesday, June 4th at 12 noon Eastern Standard Time on how infant language development depends on the conversational duets in which infants and their caregivers listen to each other. Before turning to, to today's featured presenter, Professor Alicia Lieberman, I must thank our Learning to Listen 
webinar series sponsors without whom we would not be together with all of you today. These include the Burke Foundation, the First Five Santa Clara County, friends of ours for many, many years, friends and partners, and Mitchell Gold and Bob Williams Home Furnishings. And I just wanna add that Mitchell Gold um, has been uh, laboring hard across the United States um, to help um, adults listen across differences, particularly in the area of LGBTQ um, rights and dignity. I also want to thank you, um, to give a thank you to our staff here at the Browson Touchpoint Center, to Kayla Savelli, to Michael Accardi, and Susanna Kasich for all of their efforts to make this happen and to bring us all together. And I'd like to thank all of you, people from around the country and around the world, clear across the world, practitioners from all of the family-facing sectors, researchers, policymakers, funders, and parents. And I want to thank Barry Brazelton for his enduring legacy um, and for everything that I learned from trying my hardest to listen to him. So now for today's speaker, uh, Dr. Alicia Lieberman holds the Irving B. Harris Endowed Chair in Infant Mental Health at the UCF, UCSF Department of Psychiatry and is Director of the Child Trauma Research Program at Zuckerberg San Francisco General Hospital. She was the protege of Selma Freiburg and Selma Freiburg was the author of the classic and much beloved book on child development called The Magic Years, which really is a must read for all of us. Alicia's most recent book is The Emotional Life of the Toddler, where you can learn more about what she will share with us today. Alicia is world renowned for her work on trauma in early childhood and her evidence-based child parent psychotherapy program. She's also a dear friend and mentor and inspirer for many of us. When you are with Alicia, you always feel that you have her undivided attention, that she is truly listening, and she always makes you feel better. Thank you, Alicia, for your friendship, for all you've uh, taught me and so many of us around the world, and for the privilege of listening to you today. It's all yours, Alicia. Thank you so much, Josh. And it's such a privilege to be here speaking to all of you, speaking with you, Josh, and remembering Barry Brazelton together. I want to say that uh, Dr. Brazelton taught us so much, both through the knowledge he generated, through his great understanding of young children, and I think so much more also from the way he was, the way he made us feel about children and about their parents, and the way he made us feel about ourselves as practitioners working in the field. His great joy in relationship was something that left an indelible mark in the field. And we continue to remember his smile, his exuberance, his connection, and trying to uh, live up to his legacy. So it's a great pleasure to be here. And I'm going to ask for a slide uh, to be presented. While um, this happens, I'd like to say that my presentation today is about learning to listen to fear because much as we want to listen to young children in everyday life 
so much of the language that young children convey through their nonverbal language is about their trepidation, about their uncertainty regarding how we're feeling in relation to them, how we will respond to them, and what the world holds in store for them at any particular moment. And I would like to revisit so much of what Dr. Braselton taught us about the expectable development of young children, focusing in particular on toddlers, because I think that toddlers represent for us a stage in development that confronts us with what will be lifelong dilemmas about how to reconcile the wish for autonomy with the wish for closeness, the wish to be our own self, to explore unhindered by the expectations of others to do what we want, and the longing to belong, to be loved, to have safe intimacy with those we love. And that is a lifelong balance that each of us has our own individual style in how we negotiate, but toddlers told, tell us that they are learning to do it for the first time and that they need our help in finding their own voice and that we need to listen to them in order to respond and teach. And um, what I so appreciate about Dr. Braselton is that he gave us the wonder of toddlerhood. He thought of toddlerhood as a declaration of independence, where the joy of discovery through locomotion, through words, through the feeling of I can do, therefore I am, comes forth in a sense of exuberance, vitality, and joy. The English language is full of expressions that allude to the importance of standing on one one's, one's own two feet, uh, being upright, going places, going far. We really think that the locomotion, autonomous locomotion that first happens in toddlerhood is the basis for our literal and symbolic locomotion through the rest of our lives, including our morality in being an upright person in the world. And words can make us feel understood for the first time. Toddlers realize that they can now name parts of their body. They can name feelings. They can name the world. And I find it very um, symbolic that the Genesis starts with God saying, let there be light, and then goes on to name what he wants to create, because in using words, we really create the world for ourselves and for others as well, and the connection between us. And I will talk about three forms of discovery. And then I will talk about the costs of discovery in terms of the uncertainty of what discovery brings. 
and then I will talk about the continuum from normative expectable stresses, anxieties, and fears to traumatic stresses and fears, and what we can do to understand the language of young children in telling us how much their inner world is shattered by the experience of trauma and how we can help to reconstruct their sense of self by providing protection and trust. The discovery of the world comes through exploration and exploration involves taking risks. And the sense of me do it comes hand in hand with the experience of what happens if I can't do it? And then a sense of, I need you to help me do it. In that sense, toddlers learn a lot by imitation. All children learn by imitation, but toddlers start learning by imitation and use us as their models. The basis for exploration is trust the sense that the freedom to explore is also accompanied by a sense of assurance that the parent or the caregiver will be there to help the child in the exploration of the world. And parenting values about how much freedom to give a toddler or a young child are often predicated on profound cultural experiences about safety or danger in the ecology of the family. It's very interesting, for example, that for parents who are middle class and in safe environments, a permissive form of parenting often is associated with security of attachment and with a cognitive achievement in their young children. For parents who live in dangerous neighborhoods, who are uh, worried about what freedom of exploration will mean in terms of the survival of their children. For parents right now, for example, who are afraid that being on the street is going to subject them to police brutality or to deportation or other forms of social injustice, keeping the child close and forbidding certain forms of exploration that might be considered normative in safe environments, but can actually be dangerous in environments that are under siege. That is something that we need to remember as we work with families and start trying to assess what are the reasons that parents are responding to their children's exploration the way they do? And part of the underlying message of my talk is that whenever we look at a parent and as a child together, we need to understand them in the context of their cultural experience, the historical trauma that they experience, and the ongoing injustices that they are uh, confronted with. Another form of discovery is the discovery of the self. Toddlers start with self-recognition 
And here I am reminded of Winnicott's idea of mirroring, where babies see themselves in the facial expression of how the parents and caregivers look at them. Now the toddler is looking at himself or herself and think, is this me? Who am I? Do I look the way I think? From the inside, I look. And then they start associating their external experience of the body with their internal experience of the self. This is the time when we're expecting toilet training. And toddlers are thinking, but I don't want to flush down that precious product of my body. How do I reconcile what I feel in my body and how I am being taught to, to behave? This is when gendered awareness happens. And here I want to uh, tell you all about the marvelous book by Robbie Harris called Who Has What? which teaches children from toddlerhood on about gender differences so that they realize that these are normal and expectable and that um, girls are not lacking because of what they don't have. Because as Fred Rogers said, some people are fancy on the outside and some people are fancy on the inside. And I'm, remember, I'm reminded here of uh, toddlers, a boy and a girl who were on the potty and Peter, the boy, got up, looked at himself and said, Linda, you have no penis. And Linda got up, looked at herself, was quite sobered for a moment and then said, you are right, Peter, but look, I have fingers. And that marvelous resilience shows, I am learning that you are you and I am me, and I have a lot of other parts of my body that give me pleasure, and each one of us needs to understand the other and understand themselves. Another form of discovery is discovering the other. Uh, the toddler years are the years where we develop theory of mind. We understand that our perspective is not necessarily the perspective of others. And there is some wonderful work showing, for example, that toddlers, when they are with a research assistant who prefers broccoli rather than animal crackers, when they are asked, what do you think you would like to give this research assistant who has been so nice to, to you. They give the assistant a tray of broccoli while happily munching themselves on the animal crackers. That is an extraordinarily sophisticated understanding that what I like is not necessarily what you like and that I need to put myself in your mind in order to have a connection that works for both of us. Um, we do know that theory of mind can be very sophisticated when the child is self-regulated and feeling safe. But when the child is bombarded by very strong emotions, 
then toddlers and we at whatever age revert back to a form of egocentrism where only our experience counts. And here I'd like to give you the example of a little girl who was very loving, very reciprocal, but when her mother went to work and she did not like to be separated from her mother, she would say, you are not my friend. She took a long time to understand that her mom is going to work was good for the entire family because it meant that they had a house and they had food and they had toys and they had clothes. And that partnership of learning that there are times that things are not the way we want them to be, but there is often a reason. And that reason enables us to put up with the things that we don't like. That happens in the oops, first uh, years of life as well. And this takes us to the fact that there is a constant return to secure base. And that in the secure base behavior that was first identified and described beautifully by Mary Ainsworth, there is a back and forth between staying close to the parent in situations of uncertainty and danger and unfamiliarity, and then a joyful exploration of the world when the world feels manageable, and then a return to the parent for reassurance when there are novel stimuli that are a little too intense for comfort, when there is a dog barking, when there is uh, a looming object when there, are, when there is darkness, where there is a sense of aloneness, those stimuli that trigger fear and that uh, then the fear triggers attachment behaviors which are manifested through the need for proximity and closeness. And here I want to go to what are the fears that undermine the declaration of independence and let the child realize that independence has its limitations and that autonomy needs to be counterbalanced by the support of others and by turning to others in moments of need. The four basic normative fears that makes so much evolutionary sense in terms of their function towards survival are the fear of separation, which really involves a fear of loss, the fear of losing love, which is manifested in the fear of losing approval of, the, of those we love, the fear of body damage, and the fear of not living up to the expectations of society, which makes us believe that there is something intrinsically wrong with us, and which in its own pain has its productive component, which is that it gives us the origins of a moral conscience, a sense of what is wrong, what is right, and how we fit 
in the schema of aligning ourselves with what is right and trying to learn to avoid what is wrong. I will talk briefly about each of these. Um, the fear of separation is, as I said, the fear of losing those we love. And it is based on the fact that parents and loved ones, when they are out of sight, the child is not sure that they will return again. And all cultures have developed wonderful games to reassure the child that separation is momentary, even if it seems to last forever in the subjective experience of the child, and that this separation will be followed by a joyful reunion. Playing peekaboo, hide and seek, using words to say goodbye and to say hello, providing substitutes like um, transitional objects uh, that remind the child that the parent is associated with this transitional object that he or she gave us and that is going to stay with the child until the parent comes back being left with somebody that the child knows and trusts and being mindful both of the stress of the separation and having a mindful reunion having a ritualized form of saying goodbye and saying hello creates neural connections that helps the child associate each goodbye a little bit more every time with the assurance of a reunion. The next fear is the fear of losing love. And here comes the dilemma for the child of keeping track of love in the midst of intense emotions of anger and even hatred. Winnicott said that children cannot trust a parent's love until they realize that the parent can really be angry with them, fair and square. Because when the parent is angry, the child realizes that there is something deeply meaningful about intense emotion. And that intense emotion can be uh, repaired and modulated and that love can be reaffirmed following anger. And in that sense, it's very important to disentangle love from approval. We cannot give unconditional approval to children. We need to correct them. We need to socialize them. But that needs to be always in the context of, I am doing this because it is important for you to know it. And that in turn helps the child say, to himself or herself, my mommy might be angry at me right now, I might be angry at my mommy right now, but we are going to repair. Fear of body damage is, of course, uh, heightened in the toddler years, and that is why the kissing the boo-boo, the sana sana colita de rana, it's Spanish, we have many, many formulas to help children realize that physical damage can be healed 
and that we are there to help in the healing. And the universal healing rituals are extraordinarily helpful when we are in a pinch and do not know how to respond because we ourselves are anxious in response to what happened to the child. Um, losing balance, unexpected physical challenges, losing uh, bowel movements, for example, losing hair when it is being cut, losing nails when they are being cut. Those can be very stressful experience for toddlers when they happen for the first or second time. Brushing one's teeth, one little girl was terrified when her first tooth came out. And the idea that this is something to be taken seriously, to be described as a normal process that will be replaced by new teeth is a very important experience in giving this child a sense of physical integrity. And last but not least, the fear of being bad. Am I bad when you are angry with me? And the importance of learning that doing things that are wrong are not an indictment of the sense of self. One little boy said to his father, do you still love me when I'm bad? And his father said, bless him. You are not bad. You are a little boy and you are still learning. And this boy breathed a sigh of relief and then said, can we play now? And that was a togetherness that followed this reassurance that he might be doing things that need to be corrected, but this was not a sign that the parent was withdrawing love. In the context of these normative internal fears that we all experience that unfold in the context of development and then become our lifelong companions that come up again and again in the course of our lives, we need to remember that reality matters, that stresses and traumas come from the external world, that the first three years of life are the most dangerous in terms of child abuse, accidental injury, and mortality as a result both of abuse and of accidental injury. And these external dangers, when they are overwhelming, can confirm the child's internal fears that I will be left, I can't be loved, I will be hurt, I am bad. I work a lot with children in the foster care system. And when a child has to be removed from their home as a result of neglect, as a result of abuse, as a result of domestic violence that is so intense that it endangers the child's well-being, the child invariably interprets the experience of being taken away as a confirmation that he made it happen or she made it happen, that he has been left, she can't be loved, she has been hurt, and she is bad. And 
when we talk with children or when we work with children whose fears have been confirmed by external reality, acknowledging that external reality and helping them make a disconnect between the external reality and their internal fear that this is because of them is the most important thing that we can do in bringing them towards a trajectory of healing. I think that it's very important to remember that all these fears oops, are an adaptive survival to external danger and that we respond by fleeing, moving out of the a place of danger, fighting back, becoming aggressive or freezing, trying to make ourselves as little as possible in response to a dangerous event. What I would like to propose is that these external behaviors become internal coping mechanisms so that when children are faced with very frightening, overwhelming events, they often become aggressive they, which is a form of fighting, they dissociate themselves. They say, I'm not feeling what I'm feeling. I don't want to hear. I don't want to see. I don't want to remember what happens is a compartmentalization of affect or they become disconnected from others and want to avoid intimacy because they do not trust that the new person will keep them safe. And when we look at children, when we react, to, interact with children who have been exposed to dangerous, stressful, traumatic experiences, we need to remember that there is a continuum from normative, expectable stresses, like having a newborn sibling, having the parent go back to work, having the parents go out at night without taking the child along, even though the child really wants to go with them, to emotionally costly stress, a parent who is chronically depressed, parents that are constantly bickering, a constant sense of stress about the safety of the environment to traumatic stress, which I will define right now as an exposure to actual or threatened death, serious injury, sexual violence, according to the DSM-5, and that Freud described as an event that is unpredictable so that it doesn't give us time to mobilize our coping mechanisms, fills us with terror and horror and makes us feel helpless to respond. The traumatic moment has many, many sensory stimuli. If we just take the example of a car accident, for example, where the child is in the back seat and there is a sudden impact, the body feels the impact, the ears feel the screeching of tires, the sound of the crash, 
there might be the smell of gasoline, there might be the mother or the father making frightened noises, and there might be the absence of the parent as somebody to whom they can respond because the parent herself is bombarded by the experience of the trauma and in the moment does not have the presence of mind to turn to the child as a protective uh, person. If, God forbid, there has to be an ambulance and the parent needs to be taken one way and the child another way, then the traumatic event is followed by other traumatic sequelae. And each one of them has an independent meaning for the child that create a bombardment of frightening events that mobilize simultaneously fight and flight and freezing responses that derail the child's normative developmental trajectory and that become internalized as the ways to respond in any situation that reminds the child of the traumatic event so that these responses become generalized and what we find is that a traumatic stress can create associations for the child that make even normative, expectable stimuli such as loud noises, um, accelerating cars that are safely along the highway, reminders of the accident and triggers for traumatic responses of aggression, freezing, or um, uh, fleeing. So we think of trauma as an event that produces a fast, indelible form of learning that is stamped in the preverbal parts of the brain and that creates physical sensations that bypass or logical thinking or capacity to plan and are triggered by stimuli that are associated with the, with the, with the memories of the trauma. It's a form of saying, you better remember this because this is an important event that happened to you. And if you remember, you will have a better chance to survive. So it's better to remember, even if the trauma is not happening, than not to remember when the trauma is happening. And so even reminders are going to trigger those uh, stress reactions as safety valves for your body to start taking action to protect yourself. Of course, a lot depends on the child's capacity to respond. Uh, how, what our coping responses are, predict how we respond to a traumatic event. For a farmer, a fire, and now we have the experience of Notre Dame where these courageous firefighters went towards the fire rather than away from the fire because they knew that it was their duty and they knew how to cope with it. For people who are not equipped to fight the fire, keeping distance, 
from the fire is the most adaptive mechanism. And so we have to look at traumatic events in the context of how well equipped is the child or the parent to cope with them. And children who are not equipped to deal with a traumatic event, to be protected, to be reassured that this is temporary and that they are going to be safe in the aftermath of the event, those children develop different levels of a PTSD response, post-traumatic stress response that is in every way similar to the PTSD that adults develop in the sense that they re-experience traumatic uh, memories in their body through their traumatic play, through preoccupation with what happened, Will you leave me again? Will you go away again? Will you hit me again? Will you and daddy die, fight again? Two nightmares, two having the, the, the mind go off into space in response to reminders that are frightening. Avoidance, moving away, running away, of any situation that is a reminder, avoiding the street where the car accident occurred, avoiding the corner where the, the, the car turned around, a dampening of positive emotions and an increase in social withdrawal, fearfulness, sadness, and increased arousal in the form of angry outbursts, difficulty concentrating, and aggression. When we don't listen to children's fear, we don't realize that their out-of-control behaviors might be signs of traumatic stress. And the national shame of having preschoolers, particularly black boys, black four-year-old boys expelled from childcare at much greater rates than white boys or Asian boys or Latino boys shows how blind we can be to the idea that out of control behaviors are a form of expressing fear and that we need to respond to what happened to you? What are you trying to show us by fighting, by defying, by refusing to comply? And the unconscious biases that we have, because the same behavior when shown by a black boy might be responded to with greater punitiveness than the same behavior shown by a white or Asian boy. And here the national dialogue about race, discrimination, inequality needs to become part and parcel of the national dialogue about how we listen to young children's fears, which is also how we listen to their parents' fears. 
and the threat that families of color and children of color are disproportionately uh, in uh, relation to uh, people who are not people of color. So we can think of childhood trauma as the genesis of health problems, both physical health and mental health, because when childhood trauma happens, there is an unresolvable fear when the child has nowhere to turn for help. And that increases the physiological profile of cortisol uh, levels. It affects telomere length. It affects um, um, the anatomy of the brain and the physiology of the brain. And it is interesting that the new models of depression and anxiety are being are putting emphasis now on the burden of traumatic stresses that children and adults experience in the course of their lives so that there is a coming together of external stress and internal reactions to stress as opposed to the idea of a chemical imbalance that happens for genetic reasons we have to understand that genetic changes can occur in response to external circumstances, and that the impact of trauma occurs at multiple levels, biological, cognitive, social, and emotional, and derails the capacity to learn and to trust that others will help us restore balance. That is why I think that best practice really needs to involve now screening for trauma exposure. And uh, this, uh, what I'm showing now in this um, uh, slide is um, the result of a study by Cindy Crasto at Yale University, where she went to a public health clinic and said, could you please give me a list of your children aged three to six years who came to your clinic with their parents for help with their mental health problems and tell me what diagnosis you gave them. And the findings were that 43% of the children had a diagnosis of behavioral, social, or emotional prob problems, defiance, noncompliance, um, externalizing disorders, externalizing, internalizing disorders, depression, etc. Only 13% were diagnosed as having exposure to trauma. And then Cindy said, will you give me permission to administer a trauma screening about their children to the parents? And this is a traumatic screening, that stress screening that is called uh, TESI, Traumatic Event Stress Inventory, which was developed by the Julian Ford uh, and then adapted for younger children for the first five years of life by Chandra Ghosh Ipen at the Child Trauma Research Program and is now used as the standard screening uh, instrument by the National Child Traumatic Stress Network. She found, Cindy Crasto found, that after trauma screening, it turned out that 48% of the children in this sample had experienced five or more traumatic events. 
that the average number of events that the children had, type of event that the child had been exposed to was almost five. So loss of a loved one, physical abuse, sexual abuse, domestic violence, community violence, separation, or loss. And what we know from the data is when one trauma type occurs, there is a much higher likelihood that another trauma type will also occur. So that there is, for example, a 40 to 60% overlap between child abuse and domestic violence. After the clinicians at the Community Behavioral Health Clinic realized that many of the behavioral, social, or emotional problems that they had identified had their roots in trauma exposure, the treatment changed. And the treatment took into account the ongoing experience of fear and threat that the children and often the parents were experiencing. So the identification of trauma as the first step in assessment and treatment plan has become best practice and it is identified by the American Academy of Child and Adolescent Psychiatry as a must do in the practice of mental health. So in spite of that, because it takes about 20 years to apply what we learn, we still have what I think is almost like a conspiracy of silence, where we think that young children are too little to remember. I want to give you an example that just happened yesterday, where a six-month-old This happened uh, in Israel. A six-month-old was in a house in Northern Israel that was in Central Israel, actually, that was demolished by a rocket. And for the two days following the demolishing of the house, this six-month-old did not, was frozen she had a frozen reaction. The mother thought she had become deaf. She did not cry. She did not turn to the parents for anything. She was not eating almost at all. And after two days, the parents took the child to the pediatrician and said, I think she's in shock. And the pediatrician said, she's too little to be in shock. She did not notice what happened. In the same house, there was a two and a half year old who started saying to the parents, I hate you. I'm angry with you. I don't want to be with you. And they took the child to a mental health clinic and they said, don't tell her anything about what happened. She will forget. Well, they have the demolished house there that they go by every day on the way to the shelter. There is still such a disconnect between what we know and what we practice. 
And that is why this talk is about listening to fear and identifying the sources of fear and speaking the unspeakable by talking to children about, I know what happened to you. I know how frightening it was. And I know that since that happened, it is hard for you to talk. It is hard for you to um, not bite your brother. It is hard for you to sleep. And we are here to help you. So what does speaking the unspeakable mean? It means creating a safe space to address painful events that are consciously remembered and acknowledged as real. We're not talking here about inventing false memories. We're talking just about the here and now, even if it happened last year or six months ago, and exploring possible causal connections between what happened to the child, what happened to the parents, how it affected the relationship between parents and children, and then becoming attuned to the parents and child's rhythm about how they want to respond to our presenting of this landscape for them. Because people are entitled to their defenses, they are uh, entitled to their rhythms, and we need to be sensitive in listening to how they want to respond to our hypothesis about what is happening to them. And that is what we mean by co-creating both a trauma narrative and a protective narrative so that the two go hand in hand. Because just speaking about trauma narratives can be overwhelming if we not create at the same time a narrative that is about protection and safety. That is what child parent psychotherapy is about is dual attention to the impact of immediate trauma for the parent and the child and how the parent's experience in their childhood might be affecting the capacity to provide safety for the child in the here and now. And we do it through toys. Toys that might be gentle reminders of traumatic events, jail, um, I forget, handcuffs, ambulances, dinosaurs, but also kitchen utensils, food, cuddly objects, so that together the child can go back and forth between remembering and creating protection. And then using play to understand the themes of play the themes of trauma and protection that the child is telling us about. And we call that a formulation triangle. While we talk about this happened to you and now this is how you are feeling and we and your daddy and mommy want to help. I'll give you an example of a little boy, 18 months old, we'll call him Luis, who watch his parents pushing and slapping and yelling at each other. And he became very aggressive during the day. But at night, which is when the fears come up in the rawest form, he woke up screaming, no, 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 no. And 
became frozen in response to loud noises, particularly when the parents raised their voices. And this was a classic combination of the fear and anger that comprised the fight, flight, or freeze response to threat. With the parents' permission, the clinician said to Luis, your mommy and daddy told me that they fight and they yell and you get scared and you wake up and you say no, no, and you hit. They don't want to scare you. They want to stop fighting because they love you. And Luis answered with a single syllable. Duh. And the clinician responded, I think you are telling us that you like that idea. And Luis came right up to the clinician, looked into her eyes and said, da, 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 da. The clinician said, I know, you have a lot to say. And Luis said, da, 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 da. And the clinician said, you don't like it when they argue. And Luis said, da, da, da. And Laura said, the clinician was called Laura. They used to give each other kisses, but no more. And Luis let out a big sigh. And after this big sigh, Luis went over to a shelf, this was a home visit, and picked up a stuffed animal. He kissed it. He brought it to the mother who kissed it. He got it to the father who kissed it. He brought it to the clinician who kissed it. And then he licked it. And the clinician said, doggies lick when they kiss. And the parents laughed and hugged and said, we are so embarrassed. We had no idea that he could understand so much. It is this understanding that this talk is about. And I just want to say that we use play as the vehicle for joy, practice, mastery, repair. We use play and togetherness to build a partnership, to cope with frustration, and to remember the importance of repair. And the clinical principles are the first affect to regulate is our own. And to practice kindness, offer hope. I hope you get access to these um, PowerPoints so that you can study them. And trauma treatment needs to be happening again and again and again as low focus new learning. And we have to remember that post-trauma growth happens, that some of the greatest achievements come from our effort to find meaning in the painful things that happen to us, and that we have to remember the connection between trauma and social justice. We need to remember the dangers to ourselves of caring so that we take care of ourselves first, and we need to practice what we teach by taking care of ourselves, protecting our private lives, connecting with each other. And we need to remember that small changes matter. Our mistakes can be repaired. Parents' mistakes can be repaired. And we need to define ourselves as part of a therapeutic community.
Thank you very much. Thank you, Alicia. Thank you so much. It is just the top of the hour and um, I know I can uh, go on listening to you forever and I've been looking at the questions in the chat and I think there are many others um, around the country and around the world, including many who've joined us uh, from uh, tribal sovereign nations who also would love to continue to listen to you. So um, I'm afraid you may not have had lunch yet, but... Um, <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> uh, and but, I know um, that people need to go on their way, and I'm yeah. sorry that sometimes I get carried away, but why, what I want to convey, and I'm sorry that I did not leave time for questions, but if people want to email me, I will answer the questions, unless you have another idea, Joshua. It was a beautiful talk. I don't want to um, keep people from what they need to do. I also wanted to thank you for um, your remarks about um, uh, the um, uh, disproportional uh, suspension and expulsion of black and brown boys and to say that my colleagues here also always remind us that um, uh, black and brown girls are also uh, treated differently and more punitively than um, other um, girls. And also, I know we didn't have time for it today, but I know you've been thinking um, deeply about what we all can do for children of um, parents without documentation to be in this country and the uh, trauma that they are experiencing that um, plays right on uh, several of the fears that you started out with today. Um, thank, you. thank you again, Alicia, for being with us. Thank you for um, inviting me. Thank you everybody for coming to this webinar and for coming to the next webinars for this extraordinary opportunity. Thank you. Thank you. Bye-bye. Goodbye, everybody. Thank you for joining us. And we'll see you again with June Laley and Catherine Hirsch-Basic later this spring. Bye-bye.